This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Hi, thank. Am I on? You hear me? Okay, great. Um, so, as we have more and more computers in our lives, obviously we're more and more tempted to outsource different tasks to them. And one of the tasks that we're tempted to outsource is remembering things. How many of you have at some time thought, well, I don't need to remember that, I can just Google it? A few, everybody, come on, be honest, <laughs> all of us, right? Um, so, my questions today that I want us to look at is, um, as we outsource more and more stuff to computers, is this the same thing? I mean, is memory the same process in a computer that it is in a human being? And if there are differences, how important are these differences? Do they matter or do they really not matter? How much of our memory could we outsource to a computer? All of it? Some of it? Just a little bit? So we'll look at those questions. Um, little roadmap of where we're going. We're going to start by looking at the question of how does human memory function? Uh, then we'll look at how does computer memory function and see if we're looking at the same sort of beast. And finally, we'll look at some of the implications as we outsource more and more of our memory functions to our machines instead of doing them internally in our brains. Well, you can't talk about memory without starting with Proust. So I've got to start with Proust. In A la Recherche de Tom Perdu, Proust writes about how a tea-soaked Madeleine just brings up a memory that he had pretty much forgotten from his past. Uh, he writes, as soon as I had recognized the taste of a piece of Madeleine soaked in her decoction of lime blossom, which my aunt used to give me. Although I did not yet know and must long postpone the discovery of why this memory made me so happy, immediately the old gray house upon the street where her room was rose up like a stage set. Okay, within this memory, I want you to notice two things. One is he kind of thinks about memory as if it were like a series of photographs in his mind, you know, and all he has to do is sort of go through the file find the right one, pull it out, and up it rises, the stage set. But notice also the role played by the Madeline, that he didn't find that memory file until he actually tasted the Madeline. It was the, the physical taste that brought back the memory. And also that little parenthetical remark, you know, that, well, later I'll tell you why it made me so happy, that there was obviously a lot of emotion associated with his memory. Another person who writes a lot about memory is Vladimir Nabokov. And in Speak Memory, he writes, I see again my schoolroom in Vira, the blue roses of the wallpaper, the open window. Everything is as it should be. Nothing will ever change. For him, he says, memory makes the world eternal and unchanging. So, these are two views of memory that we've kind of historically had. This view that 
you know, it's a little file there, maybe like a file of photos, and we sort of go through it, pull one up, and it's unchanging, and it makes the past unchanging. However, recent work by psychologists have shown that this isn't really the way memory works at all. Um, before we talk about what they say about it, I'd like you to just think about a memory. So go back to your childhood and think about, just pull out a memory of something that you have. Okay, what's in that memory? I mean, what, what makes up that memory? Is it visual? Is it, what is it? Do you see a picture, hear sounds? What, just a few of you, shout out. What's in your memory? A picture. Okay, what else? Emotion. An emotion, a feeling. What else? Colors. Colors. Okay, what else? Tastes. Tastes. Okay, anything else? Okay, motion. All right. So our memories are multivalent, okay? There may be a picture, sound, there may be it smells, taste. They actually say that smells are the most evocative things for our memory. There are often emotions associated with it, and often there's a narrative. You know, some motion, something's happening, something's going on, there's a storyline to the memory. So we have all of those pieces to our memory. Okay, for me, that's me a few years ago, um, <laughs> quite a few years ago. Uh, here's one memory. I remember I was about, uh, I think I was turning four, okay? And uh, I was excited. We were going to have a birthday party, uh, just a couple of family friends over. It was late afternoon, and uh, there was a storm brewing. I grew up in Minnesota, and my birthday's in early September, so one of those late summer storms, which could often be quite violent. And I remember uh, this feeling of mixed excitement about the party and my birthday and mixed apprehension about the storm that was coming. On the other hand, I have to ask myself, do I really remember that? You know, or do I remember that because there's this photo in my parents' photo album and this girl who looks kind of worried <laughs> looking out the window in her party dress? You know, did I really have those feelings then or am I seeing that because I look at the photo? Let me give you another story. Okay, these are two buildings on our campus. The top one is uh, our rather ugly science building where I unfortunately have my office. And uh, you can see a little Minnesota snow there. And the bottom one is our, our quadrangle building where most of the humanities have their lovely offices. Um, and when I met a very good friend of mine about 10 years ago, his name is Nick, and uh, we were coming out of a faculty meeting uh, he was walking with another colleague of mine, Steve, and they were talking away, and I fell in step with them. And Nick immediately fell silent. And Steve turned to him, and he goes, 
well, don't stop now. What's the punchline? And Nick said, uh, not with a lady present. Steve turned to Nick and he said, he looked around Nick and looked at me and he said, oh, that's no lady, that's just Noreen. So <laughs> anyway, both Nick and I remember, yeah, this was when we first met. And we remember word for word Steve saying, oh, that's no lady, that's just Noreen. Okay, but when I asked him about this memory, he thought, he said, yeah, we were coming from a faculty meeting. We were inside the quadrangle. It was September. And, you know, I said, no, I was on sabbatical that year. It was December. And we were coming out of the science hall and walking across the parking lot in heavy winter coats. Now, you know, we were kind of like that old couple in, how many of you remember the musical Gigi? Those of you who are of a certain age. Okay, it's like, that carriage ride, you walked me home, you lost a glove, I lost a comb. Ah, yes, I remember it well. You see, we each remembered one piece of what had happened, and we filled in the rest of the story with the details that came out of our own minds. I had us in my building, he had us in his building. Okay? So, we've got a couple of things now about memory. It's multi-layered. It's made up of sensory experience, narrative, and emotion. It's partial, and it's ephemeral. Okay? Um, those last parts, partial and ephemeral, are why we want to outsource more and more of our memory. Uh, we've been doing that ever since the first Sumerian chiseled stuff, you know, onto a piece of stone. It's a way to make our memory less ephemeral. So books, photos, records, you know, everything uh, helps with this problem that Nick and I were experiencing about, well, what really happened? Okay. Um, however, when we take something from our brain and we outsource it, uh, what I want you to get out of today is the fact that we not only change how we remember something, but we change what we remember. And it's actually the how that changes the what. It's not just that we get a better memory by outsourcing it, but we're actually going to change the whole process of memory once we outsource it. Okay, so the first question is how important are our memories to us? Are we basically just memories? And I want to quote a couple of people. I put little snippets of the quotations up here for you. Uh, the first is molecular biologist Francis Crick, who says, you, your joys, your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity, your will, are in fact nothing more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. You're nothing but a pack of neurons. So he says, okay, what makes you you are the neurons in your brain and what's stored in those neurons, okay? The philosopher Daniel Dennett then goes a step further and he says, 
If all the phenomena of human consciousness are explicable as just the activity of a virtual machine, realized in the astronomically adjustable connections of the human brain, then in principle, a suitably programmed robot would be just like us and would have a self. Okay, so implicit in what Crick and Dennett are both saying here is that you are basically information. Okay, what makes you, you, is the information that's stored in the neurons in your brain. In that case, what is that information? Well, it's information that has come from your past. Therefore, you're really not just a pack of neurons. You're nothing but a pack of memories. Okay, now the question would be, could we take that pack of memories and download it into a computer? Robert Jastrow writes, a bold scientist will be able to tap the contents of his mind and transfer them into the metallic lattices of a computer, liberated from the weakness of the mortal flesh. So immortality, anyone? You know, if this would be a new way to gain immortality. If you're nothing but a pack of memories, let's just outsource all those memories into a silicon body that's going to last longer than this one. And there you go. You have a new way of immortality. So our first question then is, well, then are these memories the same? We tend to use our most current technology as an analog for ourselves. So right now, computers are the big technology. So we tend to think of our brains in terms simply as computers made out of cellular structure, but that's basically what they are inside our head. And if this is the case, then we should be able to take our pack of memories, download them to a computer. Uh, and in the meantime, you know, lacking the ability to put all of our memories into a computer, we are putting more and more of our memories into a computer. Um, so let's take a look at, first of all, how our memory works and then how the computer memory works. Okay. How does our memory work? Uh, Ulrich Nieser says, out of a few stored bone chips, we remember a dinosaur. In other words, we do not store memories as complete entities. They're, we don't have this file of photos, kind of like Proust imagined we did, and you just pull out the right file, and there's the memory. Um, People used to think, well, we have these engrams that encapsulate an entire memory somewhere in our mind. But it really doesn't work that way. What we really do is we store bits and pieces, and then some cue comes. We grab the bits and pieces from various places in our brain, and we reassemble the dinosaur of memory. So if you think back to my story about meeting my friend Nick, um, each of us stored a few chips in our brain. So we stored uh, Steve's little saying. We stored the fact that we were with Steve. We stored the fact that we were coming from a faculty meeting. When we put the dinosaur back together, though, we each got a different dinosaur um, because we had some of the same chips. Maybe we had other chips that one of us stored, the other one did not store. Okay. Now, to store these chips, generally, you store memories best if you've already got something in your memory that you can associate things with. So I often tell my students, I call this the, 
the peg theory of mental development, that you need to hammer a certain number of pegs inside your brain so that when information comes, you've got some place to hang it on. Because otherwise, new facts are going to come in, and it would be kind of like tossing clothes into your closet, and it all lands in a heap in the floor on the bottom. But if you have mental pegs, you have places to hang each new memory, and they're more likely to get stored accurately. Now, because of this theory, and because I know I'm right, I think that my version of the Nick story is better than his version. The reason I say that is because he was a new faculty member, and he had just been introduced in September, and I had hammered a peg into my mind at that point, saying, hmm, interesting new faculty member, somebody I would like to meet. So when I actually met him, I had something in my brain that I could store the memory on. Uh, he did not. I was a total random stranger that just popped up out of nowhere. So I tend to think that I was right. But uh, he would argue about that. He's not here to argue, though. Um, so we also store our memory in many places. And I won't go into all of the, the bits and pieces of this. but. Sensory data goes in one place, um, spatial and semantic memory in another, emotional memory in another place. So we reassemble the pieces of a memory from many places in our brain. Okay, um, But the most important thing that I want to point out to you here is that when we reassemble the memory, we incorporate some pieces of the present, of the cue that brought up that memory, into the memory. So if we go back to Proust, for example, when he tastes that madeleine, he isn't just remembering the taste of madeleines from the past. He's incorporating the taste of the present madeleine into his memory. And if he's in a particular mood while he's eating that madeleine, he may be incorporating some of the valence of his current mood into the memory. So he bites on the madeleine, he gets the cue, he pulls the di dinosaur chips out of various parts of his mind and comes up with the memory of being at his aunt's house. When he refiles that memory, it's going to be changed slightly. It's just like the old story of telephone that you probably played as a child, where you tell a story to a friend who tells it to someone else, to someone else, each time it comes out a little bit different. The interesting thing about this is it makes a dialectic between the present and the past, so that, yes, our past very much influences our present, but our present also very strongly influences our memories of the past and our memories get refiled. It also gives us some advantages. For example, when people suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder or have some very bad memories, it's found that if they, for example, bring up a memory of something that traumatized them and tell the story from the third person instead of the first person, as if it happened to someone else, a story that happens to someone else is a little bit out there. And that helps them, therefore, to distance themselves emotionally a little bit from the story. When they refile it, it might ratchet down a little bit the emotions that are associated with that story. 
So each time we bring up a memory, we change it slightly, and the present is able to work on the past. So as Dan McAdams says, the unfolding drama of life is revealed more by the telling than by the actual events told. Stories are not merely chronicles like a secretary's minutes of a meeting, written to report exactly what transpired at what time. Stories are less about fact and more about meanings. In the subjective and embellished telling of the past, the past is constructed and history is made. Walter Benjamin puts this in a slightly different way, and he says, the work of memory collapses time, not so much by making the past present as by making the present part of the past. Okay, as experiences get further and further into the past, we may find that there are fewer and fewer cues that will bring them back up. And this, of course, is the process of forgetting until we ultimately get to the point where there are very few cues that will bring up a memory. And, of course, this is one of the things, especially those of us who are getting to be a certain age, that uh, we really dislike about internal human memories. But forgetting is also adaptive. Um, we see this illustrated really well in Jose Borges' uh, short story, Funes el Memorioso. In this story, he talks about a young man who has a horseback riding accident, and because of the accident, he suddenly has total recall. And you know, it's like, wow, wouldn't it be great to have total recall? But as he goes through the story, it turns out that this is a terrible handicap for the young man uh, because he remembers absolutely everything. So his mind is just crowded with details. You know, what did you have for breakfast a year ago on this day? He would remember it. And by the way, this isn't just fiction. Um, there was a, a Russian who has studied. Uh, his name was Solomon Shereshevsky. I have to look that one up. Uh, who actually had this capacity. He could, you could, he could come listen to my talk, and he could step out that door and repeat it word for word, probably with all the ums in the right place, too. Okay, the problem is he wouldn't understand a word of it. If you asked him, well, what was the talk about? He'd say, well, and repeat the talk. But he couldn't summarize it. He couldn't get it. In other words, he couldn't see the forest for the trees. If you remember everything, you really know nothing. Because knowing something is the act of categorizing and the act of selective forgetting. We have to forget in order to know things. Um, as Bourget puts it, to think is to forget a difference. OK, so in general, forgetting is a good thing for us. It's adaptive. Uh, then again. Um, got, it might not always be adaptive or good for evolutionary purposes. Okay, let's move on to computers. Uh, here's a picture of one of the earliest computers. Uh, and as you can see, there are all sorts of little holes and little wires hanging there. And the earliest computers did not have any memory. And so they had to be rewired to do every single task. So that's what the ladies are there for, to move all the wires around. Uh, and they, in effect, were the programmers by programming through wiring the computer. Pretty clunky. 
So Turing had imagined storing programs in memory, and it was von Neumann who actually made them a reality and said, what we really need is memory in our computers, and we'll store the programs in the memory, we'll store the data in the memory, and that uh, way of looking at a computer is way not to scale because we don't need very many circuits in the accumulator at all. In fact, you can have a functioning computer with exactly two circuits in there, one for addition and one for e equivalence. Okay, uh, so if you really shrink that arithmetic logic unit area, the memory up on top should be huge because that's really where most of the computer circuits lie. And uh, so computers have memory chip after memory chip after memory chip. It's almost all memory. Okay, um, what about this memory? Well, it's large and it's static. Uh, unfortunately, it's, you know, we like to think it's permanent. It's not as permanent as we'd like. You guys have probably all, you know, seen this from time to time. You think something's out there, you go looking for it, and poof, it's gone. And uh, you don't quite know why. Um, another problem, um, thinking of this, Alan, and we were talking, is uh, for those of you on the faculty, how many of you have a forlorn pile of floppy disks in a drawer somewhere? Uh-huh. So um, we think it's permanent. Actually, books are a lot more permanent than computer memory. And I'll get to why in a minute, although you could probably guess why. Um, another thing about computer memory, I love this pair of pictures, okay, is its staticness. Um, this is a picture of the, uh, basically the uh, Archbishop of Moscow, and it was published in the Russian press, and then they decided that maybe an archbishop shouldn't be wearing such an expensive Rolex, and so they airbrushed out the Rolex. The fun thing is, if you look at the picture on the left, which was the one that was actually, you know, in the press, you notice they forgot about the reflection in the table. So a little ghost of his watch remains. Um, but you see, this is the difference between computer memory and human memory. If in your memory you forgot the Rolex, you'd completely forget the Rolex, right? But in the computer, well, we forgot half of the Rolex, you know? But the whole concept of Rolex is still there. Um, so that's part of the staticness of the memory. Whoops, we're going a little too far ahead. Okay. Other point I want to make, though, about computer memory is it's, it's very large. So it's, it's static, it's permanent, sort of, okay, and it's very large. And most of our recent advances, particularly in artificial intelligence, but uh, actually in most areas, have simply come about recently because memory has gotten so cheap and so small that it can get so large. So if we think about um, Watson winning Jeopardy or even Deep Blue beating Kasparov as chess, it's because it, there was a huge memory there. Deep Blue had a memory of every single game Kasparov had ever played, something that a human player would not have in their memory. Um, Watson has just a huge memory base and, you know, fast processors that can access things in that memory base. 
So lots of memory there. Okay. You can see, though, a slight difference between how memory works in the computer and in the human being, because in the human being, we only have the bits and pieces. In the computer, you've got it all. In the human being, you change it every time you remember something. In the computer, it stays static, unless someone goes in and erases the watch and changes it. It stays the same. Now, I want to talk a little bit about some of the implications of moving toward the computer type of memory from the human type of memory. And to do that, I want to step aside and talk just a little bit of religion here. Um, my school, where I teach, is a Benedictine university, and we have a very large Benedictine community of monks there. Benedictines, when they enter their order, take three vows, but they're not the three vows that we think about, uh, you know, poverty, chastity, and obedience. Their three vows are stability, which means they're going to stay in one place, in one Benedictine house, the one they came to. And they're going to find God there with the people who happen to be there. Um, the second one is obedience to their abbot and to the rule of St. Benedict. And the third vow is a really strange one. It's called conversatio morum suorum. And that Latin literally translates, actually I have to read this because I could never remember this. Um, it literally translates as, where is it? Uh, the way of life of his behavior. Okay, so I vow to be faithful to the way of life of my behavior. What the hell does that mean, right? Um, it's, it just doesn't translate. And many writers have come up with different ways. In the Middle Ages, many versions of the rule of St. Benedict were badly transcribed. And this weird Latin word, conversatio, they put in as conversio. And so then people said, well, it's conversion of life or conversion of behavior. Okay, which is kind of close to the meaning uh, of what it is. But uh, what it's really understood these days, and by most of the monks who I've talked to and asked, well, how did you understand that vow? They've said, I understand that as my vowing myself to a continual life of change or a life of continual change. Okay, and they see this as sort of the flip side of the vow of stability that the vow of stability says, I'm going to stay in one place, I'm going to stay with one rule, one way of life, but that the conversatio vow on the other side says, that life is going to be continually changing, and I will keep continually changing as a person. Okay, um, an old Irish monk who visited our campus, uh, when asked by one of my students, well, what do you guys do in the monastery anyway? He said, we fall and we get up, we fall and we get up, we fall and we get up, we fall and we get up again. And I think that's a wonderful way of describing not just the monastic life, but anybody's life. We fall and we get up, we fall and we get up. Sometimes when we fall like dominoes, we knock somebody else over. And we hope we have the grace to help them up again. Okay, and because of this continual falling, 
at the center of the Christian life should be the call to forgiveness. That we are going to fall. We're all sinners. And we all need to be forgiven by each other over and over and over again. Okay. And this brings up one of the problems with outsourcing memory. And it is that the computer remembers things too statically and too long. The writer Victor Meyer Schoenberger uh, talks about these two people that I have up on the screen. One is a college student named Stacy Snyder. She went to a conservative college and at one point on social media posted this photo of herself as a drunken pirate at a Halloween party. The photo wasn't just accessed by her friends, it was accessed by university officials uh, who then tried to keep her from graduating with her teaching credential because they said she engaged in behavior that was unbecoming of a teacher. So one of the problems we run into when we outsource memory is an external memory is no longer in our control. We can't control who accesses it, and we can't control how long it exists. Okay, the other fellow here, his name is Andrew Feldman. He is a psychologist at Harvard. And back in the 60s, when uh, there were lots of folks, you know, kind of Alan Watts and Timothy Leary and all of that, you know, it's a whole group experimenting with psychedelics as psychologists, and he was one of them. And he wrote a paper that was published in this obscure psychology journal back in the 1960s about his experiences with psychedelics. Now, he lives in Seattle, his son lives in Canada, and he found himself, he was trying to drive to Canada to visit his son one time, turned back at the border. Because they had Googled him, this obscure article had come up, and they said, no, you've done drugs, you've done forbidden drugs, even if it was 40 years ago, and he's been clean ever since then. So one of the problems is that human memory allows us to change. It allows things to be forgotten. The way that a cue makes us bring up a memory, change it when we put it back, means that a person who lives in a community who may have done something, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, that's probably not going to be the way you think about that person or the basis on which you judge that person anymore. So besides an outsourced memory going out of our control, we also can't control the forgetting of that memory. And it can be very hard, at least communally, to forgive what cannot be forgotten. And uh, I've noticed that you have posters up for an, an evening of forgiveness uh, that'll be tonight here on your campus. This forgiveness is so central and it becomes so difficult at a communal memory when we don't forget anything. Okay, so that's first two problems. It's out of our control and there can be some problems with forgiveness. Another problem is in setting up our sense of self. Our sense of self comes from the narrative that we tell ourselves about where we've been, who we are, and where we're going. Okay, so um, Anthony Giddens writes, a person's identity is not to be found in behavior, nor, important though this is, 
in the reaction of others, but in the capacity to keep a particular narrative going. So when Conversatio talks about you know, the, the way of his behavior, it's talking about this narrative of who is this person, this monk? You know, who has he been, but who does he want to be? Who is he becoming? And uh, when we put our memories outside of ourselves, we run into two problems with this narrative, with keeping this narrative going. Okay, one problem is, again, that static nature of what we put outside of ourselves. But there's also a problem with the fragmented nature of what we put outside of ourselves. In our memory, we form these extended narratives of who we are. On the web, our narratives tend to be more instances. That picture you put on Instagram, that post you put on um, social media, that tweet that went up on Twitter. In a way, instead of being storytellers telling an extended story about our lives, we become scrapbook collators. And our lives become more fragmented. And several people have said that this builds into a tendency of the postmodern era. Um, Dan McAdams says, you know, faith in science and technology, assumptions about objectivity and rational discourse, belief in progress, the assumed coherence of political economic systems, such as capitalism and Marxism, all of these have been severely undermined, leaving a confusing multiplicity of power discourses. Outsourcing memory, um, I think, has a tendency to add to this fragmentation, to these multiple discourses, where in one place you're one thing, in another place you're another thing. We become not so much a story with a structured plot and character development, but a scrapbook filled with disconnected status updates, memories, tweets, and images. And I think this is maybe one of the reasons why memoir has become the most important category of writing right now. They say there are actually more memoirs being published than fiction, which I, seems amazing to me, but that's what they say. Um, and I think in many ways it's our attempt in our society today to recapture this sense of memory as narrative. Um, so Madan Serap writes, and I put just a piece of this up here, but um, he says, I've always felt lonely, and even when married, 10 years later, I continued to have feelings of loss, feelings I have never understood. And now that I think I'm beginning to understand, the people that I want to talk to have died. Perhaps it doesn't matter now. But then why am I writing? Is my writing an attempt to put it all together? Does one have to rewrite the past in order to understand it. So for Serap, it's the process of writing, of memoir writing, that gives him insight into his past. And it's that process that helps him to make a coherent story of all the pieces of memory that he has. And I think it's in memory as process that we find the means for this conversatio morum suorum, for this means of conversion of life. Okay, so to finish, I want to come back to this idea 
could we outsource our memories completely to a computer? Could we find some new kind of immortality there? Because our memories would go on after our bodies die. And uh, you know, I pulled this avatar project picture off the web. There are people who are actually um, involved in this project. In fact, there's one Russian billionaire who is putting all of his billions into this project in the hope of finding some sort of immortality by outsourcing all of his memories to a computer. Um, there are some problems, though, with this. Uh, first of all, what's going to happen then? Is the computer going to hold your memories static? That's not going to be the same process as your memories when they're inside your head. Or are you and the computer going to veer away from each other from that point on as you alter your memories one way and it alters its memories in another way? And a question that I would ask, too, is not having a body, what is a computer going to make of the memory, of Proust's memory of the Madeleine, of tasting the Madeleine? Uh, first of all, it's never going to have that cue of tasting the Madeleine to bring up the memory again. The memory's going to have to be cued in some completely different way. And what does that mean? That means it's going to be a different memory after it gets cued from the way it would have been remembered by Proust after he tasted the Madeleine. So these are very, very different ways of remembering. And I think any attempt to put our memories in a computer is going to be very unsatisfying, in a sense, because there's going to be such a divergence from that moment, even if we reach the point and Ray Kurzweil thinks we're going to reach that point by 2030. I think he's wildly optimistic. Computers aren't going to be anywhere near having that capability by then. Um, but even if our computers were good enough that we could upload every single neural connection inside our brains somehow, from that moment on, the whole memory scene is going to change completely. So two final comments. My first is, many people, when I give a talk like this, they say, so are you against computers? And I want to say, no, I'm, not a, I'm a computer scientist. And I wouldn't be here if it weren't for Google Maps. Okay, So I don't want to give up computers or computer memory. But kind of going back to Jesus, you know, when, when asked about paying taxes you know, and asking to be shown a coin and then saying, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render unto God the things that are God's, I would say, why do we keep looking at computers to be our surrogate instead of our partner? You know, let's have them do the things they do really well. Let's keep doing the things we do ourselves. And uh, the thing, one of the things we do well is this narrative changing way of remembering things. That doesn't mean there aren't certain things I want my computer to remember. You know, I want my contact list in there. Um, on the other hand, I'm probably also going to want to keep a paper backup of that contact list in case, you know, it all goes bloop in the night and disappears. And I want to give the final word to Woody Allen, uh, that great philosopher who in the movie Manhattan 
uh, kind of talks about this question, what makes life worth living? And I want to come back around. Remember the quotation from Proust? He talks about the Madeleine, and his memory is all about taste, you know, about the senses. It's all about how happy he felt, the emotions. And these are the very things that get lost in outsourced memory. And so I'm afraid we might lose some of the most important things if we outsource too much. So as Woody Allen says, why is life worth living? It's a very good question. Um, well, there are certain things, I guess, that make it worthwhile. Like what? Uh, for me, I would say what? Uh, Groucho Marx, to name one thing, and Willie Mays, and the second movement of the Jupiter Symphony, and Louis Armstrong's recording of Potato Head Blues, uh, Swedish movies, naturally, Sentimental Education by Flaubert, Marlon Brando, Frank Sinatra, Those Incredible Apples and Pears by Cezanne. Oh, The Crabs at Sam Woo's. And, well, Tracy's face. Yeah, Tracy's face. Thank you. <laughs>